piece recently called Do More, what Amazon teaches us about robots and the jobless future. Mm-hmm. They've put 45,000 robots in their warehouses, and the result has been that they've hired hundreds of thousands more human workers. Why? Because they used to deliver your products in two days, and now they're delivering new products the same day. <laughs> they're doing more with technology, rather, and, and they're saying, wow, how can we delight customers more? Tim O'Reilly had never come in contact with a computer until after college when a friend asked him to help write a technical manual. It's quite a turn then that he's become a Promethean figure in Silicon Valley. Like the mythical titan who stole fire from the gods and brought it to mankind, O'Reilly's publishing empire, his conferences and learning platforms have demystified computer languages and tectonic shifts. He literally wrote the book on the internet, The Internet User's Guide and Catalog, the first popular tome about the subject. He and his events birthed terms like open source and Web 2.0, which have become enduring parts of the tech lexicon. His Make magazine arguably launched the broader maker movement of hands-on crafters and tinkerers. I'm John Fort from CNBC, and you're listening to the Fort Knox podcast, Rich Ideas and Powerful People. I do this weekly, bringing you the highest achievers. We're going to learn how the very best climb to the top and pull out lessons along the way. If that sounds good to you, make this a habit. Apple's podcast app is the most popular way to do that, but there are all kinds of great ways. Mainly what I want you to do, subscribe, so this gets to you automatically. One less thing to worry about. Naturally, I wanted to sit down with Tim O'Reilly to talk about his new book, WTF, What's the Future and Why It's Up to Us. In it, he has strong words for the internet-driven tech industry he helped to shape and some insight for workers like us trying to navigate this new digital landscape. Here's Tim O'Reilly. First off, uh, I should say this is uh, the second book in my life that I have not published myself. first (laughs) one was uh, when I was 24 years old, I wrote a, a biography of Frank Herbert. Uh, the reason why... Who had just passed away, right? Uh, oh, he died many years ago. Oh, okay. Uh, the, uh, uh, the reason I did this book uh, with Harper Business uh, uh, was because I'm really thinking hard about technology and the future of the economy. Uh, I can reach my own audience. I've been evangelizing a set of ideas through my own events and publishing on Medium and uh, so on. But... I, I realized that there was a chance to reach a broader business audience as well. And so I, I've written this book. It's called WTF, What's the Future and Why It's Up to Us. And it's, it's fundamentally a, it, it, it's a rethinking of the economy based on what I've learned from looking at technology platforms over the past 30, 40 years. I've been a, you know, involved in an observer of the technology scene uh, through my a company, O'Reilly Media. We started out as a documentation consulting company, became a publisher, became an events company. Started in what year? Uh, I formally started the company in uh, 1983, uh, but had an earlier life as a partnership, which started in 1978. Mm. So, uh, you know, so close to 40 years. And uh, I've been involved very early on in my career. I learned that uh, advocacy was the best marketing. And so I started out in the early 90s uh, advocating for the commercial Internet. Mm-hmm. Uh, we launched the first commercial web browser. We published a book called The Whole Internet User's Guide and Catalog that sold a million copies and introduced the World Wide Web to the world. And then we went and created the first commercial website. Um, then in the late 90s, I, I, I organized a group of people to kind of tell the story of open source software. We, we kind of introduced that new name and, and marketed that. 
Uh, after the dot-com bust, I kind of led the storytelling about the second coming of the web after the bust. Uh, web 2.0. 2.0. Yeah. And kind of the rise of big data as the lever of competitive advantage. Uh, I've been worked on uh, you know the maker movement, uh, the maker fair spun out of my company. Uh, and I also started a, a whole lot of activism around 2008-2009 on open government, gov, what we call Gov2.0, government as a platform. But so more recently, t- t- tell me about what got you there. W- where did you grow up? What are the ideas that influenced that approach to technology? Because it, it seems to me, having co- covered technology for a while, there are often two competing forces, one that's more open and community-based yeah. and one that's more winner-take-all, um, you know, power and, and, and might-based. Yeah, well, first off, uh, my, you know, I, 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 I was introduced uh, to technology uh, through, you know, documentation, which was not a terribly sexy business. <laughs> you know, I, I, I literally had a friend who was a programmer who got asked to write a manual, and I didn't know anything about computers. I said, I'll help you out. What year was that? Uh, that would have been 1970, uh, end of 78. Um, so after college? Uh, yeah, after college. So you didn't study, you weren't technical at all? I or? saw my first computer the, the same day I got my first job as a technical writer. Huh. Uh, uh, and I basically had helped him a little bit uh, behind the scenes. Um, you know, so I kind of, it was all learning on the job. And actually that was a big part. You know, and if you go, come full circle, we all have to learn on the job today. You, know, mm-hmm. you have this idea that everybody goes to school and then you're done. You know, that's an idea from the 20th century. 21st century, you've always got to be learning new things. So here I was. I graduated from Harvard with a degree in classics, Greek and Latin. Huh. And uh, I had, uh, just uh, had a new baby on the way. I had to start thinking about how I was going to make a living. And uh, and along came this opportunity. It was like, wow, I, okay. I'll, technical I'll writing. Yeah, technical writing. And, and that intrigued you. After going to Harvard to study the classics, or was it really you got a baby on the way and it's... Well, it, 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 was actually intriguing because I was very, very interested in, um, you know, when, when you're learning uh, Greek and Latin, you know, nobody speaks it, so you don't learn it very naturally. So you're reading these sort of difficult, hard-to-parse documents and trying to make sense of them. So pattern recognition becomes a very good skill. And it turned out to be a key skill for technical writing, where I would read these specs I go, well, what are these really about? And it was kind of like reading a Latin text originally. <laughs> I did some of my best technical writing in the days when I didn't really understand the technology because I could see the patterns. I'd go, oh, wait, this is connected to this. Explain that to me. You know? and, and that's really been my career ever since, you know, kind of looking at the world fresh. And I've tried to preserve that freshness. You know, a good example, when I, and I tell this story in the book, the book is, is so funny because it's sort of an economic uh, call to action wrapped in a business advice book wrapped in a memoir. You know, so it's, <laughs> it's a lot of wrapping. Uh, yeah, so yeah. There's, there's layers to the book. It, it, it is, you know, here's my life in tech uh-huh. you know, because I've had a pretty big influence over the years. Yeah. You know? um, uh, but here's my life in tech. Here's what I've learned uh, from it. And here's how it applies to our current economic situation. And so that pattern recognition was a big part of it. So let me give you uh, uh, a um, uh, you know an e- a example from uh, you know fairly recently. Uh, a lot of people were talking about Uber and Lyft and the on-demand economy. Mm-hmm. 
And I said, yeah, on-demand is part of it. But if we actually look at the map of everything that's important about these, it's a combination of uh, the Internet is uh, affecting the real world now. You know, these are not just sort of online media properties anymore. You know, so the principles of Internet platforms are coming to real-world services. So that's the first thing you notice. Mm -hmm. And then you start saying, well, what are the – so if you like the design patterns of success, you know, one is – this really interesting idea, which is, is actually the key to the future economy, which is the idea of the cognitively augmented worker. Cognitively augmented worker. Or, so yeah. kind of a mental cyborg. Yeah, because when you think about it, an Uber or Lyft driver is a cyborg, hmm. right? You know, the fact that you can have you know, all of these untrained drivers coming in to this market and revolutionizing it, is a combination of a number of factors. L let me, so let me talk about the cyborg quality. You know, think about uh, here's this app that lets you find passengers by magic wherever they are. You know, they're, they're a needle in the haystack of the city. And the app connects you with the passenger. Uh, and and, and you, you go find them. But you also don't know, have, to, have to know your way around the city that well because you have an app that tells you and routes you. Mm. So think about that. And you also don't have to have your own payment system. That's right. Exactly. Because the app collects payment for you. That's right. So uh, that's part of the magic. And part of what I, I came to was that's also the design pattern for the future economy. Because if we, you know, not the on-demand part necessarily, although some of that might, might be important too, but the cognitive augmentation. Because if you look at our past success in the economy, it was – through technology making people more productive and that productivity being used to develop new kinds of services. You know, as I like to say, you know, uh, after the Luddite rebellion, you know, where the, they, they, they smashed the looms because the machine looms were taking away the work from the, you know, the old hand weavers, uh, <laughs> we didn't say, great, you know, we, uh, you know, we, the owners of the looms, uh, can now make everybody their one suit of homespun that they have for the year. Uh, you know, in uh, much, much less time, and we're done. You know, in fact, we built this whole new economy of fashion and people buying clothes, and we ended up with ordinary people having more clothing than formerly the kings and queens of Europe had, right? Yeah. And the same thing with food. You know, food became a commodity, and we made it more valuable. And so in a similar way, here's this cognitive enhancement as opposed to a sort of an enhancement of our physical skills. Mm -hmm. And sure enough, it's making it possible to do more. And there are more people working as drivers today because of that. Mm. There's another part of that. You, so, again, trying to unpack the business model of these, uh, these companies. You say, well, it's also a really interesting case where all these humans are being managed by algorithms. And then those algorithms That's are being a scary managed thought, by yeah. different humans. Uh-huh. So the, the company of the future is, uh, is a combination of human and algorithm and learning how to, to, to bring those, uh, the, the best of each to bear is, is critical to the companies of the future. It's also a network. Uh, you know, the reason why uh, you know, these companies, Uber and Lyft, for example, can outperform taxi companies is because they can bring way more people to bear. The, the problem with taxis is, uh, you know, there's an equilibrium point if you have to scale with full-time drivers and cabs you own, where you can't basically have enough cabs uh, for peak demand because 
uh, because uh, the rest of the time, most of them will be idle. Yeah. So you kind of find some place in the middle where you're kind of like, well, uh, not enough for the average day. Average demand. Yeah. But because you have this swarming algorithm that brings more people into the market when there's more demand, part-time drivers with their own cars, you're able to actually get more people driving, more rides available, change the dynamics of the industry. I I, I want to ask, take a break for a moment, to ask about your trajectory Mm -hmm. as an entrepreneur. Yeah, sure. What does somebody who um, wrote the first book about basically the internet Mm -hmm. do when... Uh, less than a decade later, the dot-com crash hits. And if you're, if you're marketing to people who are interested in building for this new world, mm-hmm. and a lot of those people think that world is coming to an end, what happens to your business and what do you do? Well, we had a pretty rough time in the dot-com bust. Uh, we we uh, laid off probably a quarter of our workforce. Our business shrank at that point. I think we were about a $70 million company. Uh, we dropped to 50 uh, the next year, you know, mm. and we kind of had to build our way back up. That's not but as much as I might have thought, actually. Yeah. Uh, but we, we 70 to 50? I mean, I would have thought it would have gone mo- more than half that. Why, why wasn't it worse? Uh, well, we were very quickly able to grow other parts of our business. We, you know, we were mostly publishing at that point. We had just started our conferences business. Uh, we were able to grow that, uh, continue to grow that. Uh, we started a lot of things. Uh, we, we started Safari, our online learning platform, in 2000, right after the bust. And, uh, and it was interesting because our philosophy, which is our job is to serve our market and not just to, you know, there were other people where, well, we're trying to sell books. And you know, we were like, no, no, we're trying to help people learn how to build the future. And there's lots of ways to do that. So we found new ways to do it. So we actually... Started this uh, online ebook service originally. It's now generally an online learning platform in the heart of our business called Safari. And we invited our biggest competitor, a company that literally had an internal group called the O'Reilly Killers, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, where they were trying to kind of compete with us and put us out of business, into our platform. And who was that? Uh, it was, uh, Pearson. Okay. Uh, Pearson Technology Group. It, it was sort of uh, publishing companies like Addison Wesley and Press yeah. Hall yeah. Uh, and so on that were, were, were big at the time. And they basically. Uh, joined in because, uh, you know, our philosophy was create value for your users and uh, the rest will follow. And uh, and build ecosystems, build platforms. And, and it's really kind of, I've been, that's really the philosophy I'm following, I've followed ever since. And what I, that I've really tried to encourage, uh, you know, the tech industry to understand properly, it, like going back to Uber and Lyft, drove me nuts when these guys are saying, you know, or at least the narrative because actually, if you listen to what John Zimmer says um, at Lyft, uh, you know you, you'll hear his narrative about self-driving cars is how we're going to have to, you know, find ways for the driver to coexist with the drivers to create opportunity for the drivers to be new kinds of businesses on the platform. He says all those things, but all you read about in the traditional analysis is. This will allow the companies to get rid of the drivers and all the costs. And you know, and I, I am so sick of that narrative that technology is about getting rid of costs. Hmm. I was talking with one leading AI guy who told me, "Well, I invested in a company that will eliminate a third of all call center jobs." And I said, uh, "Have you actually spoken to a call center recently? Were you satisfied with the service you were getting? You know, why are you talking about?" You know, eliminating the jobs rather than making the service better. Mm. And I think that, again, kind of coming back to this idea that I'm kind of preaching uh, right now is 
we have to understand that the, the role of business is to solve problems. The role of technology is to solve problems, to make the world a better place. It's not to make money. I guess the, the question is to solve problems for whom? Because if you're trying to eliminate call center jobs, there's some bean counter who sees that as a problem. That's exactly right. And, and well, I, I think the, the real point is, is we have to think broadly. We have to think about ecosystems. And, and kind of coming back to the, the, uh, the uh, you know, the economic polemic wrapped in the memoir, uh, you know, my, my uh, probably my, the shaping, you know, foundation of my early technology life was open source versus open source software versus Microsoft and proprietary software. Mm -hmm. And here I saw all these people who were giving away their software for free, creating this whole new world, the Internet, uh, that was creating enormous economic value that they were not capturing for themselves. Mm -hmm. And over on the other side was a company that was working so hard to capture all of the value from the ecosystem. And what happened was that Microsoft... Microsoft. You know, the PC, when I started in the industry, was this, uh, was this opportunity, and there were all these new companies, just like the Internet, right? Mm -hmm. And then Microsoft basically ate more and more of the value. The ecosystem dried up, and all the developers went somewhere else. And that's when Microsoft, actually, the, the time when they thought, well, we are so powerful, was actually the moment of their destruction. Is Jeff and Bezos smarter? I think Jeff is, actually. He's probably the smartest entrepreneur out there right now. And I do think that um, for a long time I worried, you know, that he would follow that same pattern. But he hasn't. No, I think, you know, the, the, you know eventually once they got to sufficient share, they would start squeezing their, you know, their suppliers. And they're still pretty they're, – they're very competitive. But, but they have, in fact, continued to just up the ante, do more. You know, I, I wrote this piece recently called Do More, what Amazon teaches us about robots in the jobless future. Because mm -hmm. they've put 45,000 robots in their warehouses, and the result has been that they've hired hundreds of thousands more human workers. Why? Because they used to deliver you products in two days, and now they're delivering you products the same day. <laughs> they're doing more with technology, rather, and, and they're saying, wow, how can we delight customers more? And their whole idea of the flywheel of delight customers, more customers come, you know, grow the business, deliver better service. And, and we've forgotten that. We have, have this economy that's become captured by the bean counters. And in particular, a class of bean counters that we call investors but aren't really investors. Hmm. You know, when, when uh, you know, a new company is starting up, Elon Musk has investors, right? Right. But I'm really struck, uh, a good example here recently was Jeff Immelt out at GE. Now, Jeff was really focused on building, you know, you know for the industrial future, uh, focused on the real economy, mm -hmm. making real progress in, in, in I think, uh, uh, making GE an exciting company. Not good enough for the, quote, investors. <laughs> GE didn't need any money for them, so they weren't actually investors in GE. They were simply buying its stock. And then, you know, I read this white paper by Tryon Partners, the, the activist investor that I think led to Jeff's ouster. Yeah. And it's so striking because they talk about what a great business GE is in this paper. Right? <laughs> and here, their, their dominant market share in, the, in their main categories, they're streamlining the business in this way. This, this is going to be great. Um, but then they weren't happy. It wasn't going fast enough. And so they're saying, well, we want 
uh, them to borrow $20 billion and use it for stock buyback. Mm. And that's just that's stock manipulation. That's yeah. not investment. That's, you know, it's like it's, it's basically manipulation. You know, and yes, all the investors benefit. But it's really a reallocation of value from the real economy, where Jeff was busy investing in, you know, building, you know, smarter locomotives and smarter jet engines, and you know, you know, to basically these financial parasites. Have you ever been dramatically directionally wrong? It occurs Absolutely. to me, coming, I, I would hear about Ajax, and I'd see O'Reilly Publishing had a. A book, a how-to yeah, yeah. book about Ajax yeah. out, or C++, yeah. or open, whatever it might be. Yeah. When have you been just published a book or had a strategy that was just totally off? You know, the um, uh, probably the, the most striking example of this uh, was uh, not not in publishing. It was actually uh, Clay Shirky, uh, uh, who's a wonderful uh, observer of the internet scene. Uh, organized a meeting that he called the Social Software Summit. And he made the case that something he was calling social software, you know, later became called social media, was going to become the next big category. Hmm. And I said, I don't see it, Reed. <laughs> I mean, not Reed. Uh, uh, Clay. Clay. And what and, year was that? Uh, oh, I don't know. It would have been, you know, it was certainly well before MySpace. It was in the, the 90s sometime, you know. Um, <laughs> And uh, maybe 97. No, it was actually no. It'd be after 98. But it was it was pretty early, and of course I changed my tune pretty quickly. But uh, that's probably the most striking case. Um, you know, now I have been wrong on timing a lot. You know, so for example, after we we launched GNN, which was the first uh, commercial website first web portal and the first website to have advertising. We, we were growing, and I decided I wanted to keep my company private, so I decided to sell it. I sold it to AOL. Uh, it was part of their sort of plan to become an Internet company rather than a dial-up company. Mm -hmm. And as soon as we sold it, and I actually got to know the company better, I realized, oh, this isn't going to happen. You know, <laughs> they don't really get the Internet. And so as soon as our lockup ended, I sold my stock. Uh, and I smart. Have, yeah, well, or not yet? Not, no, not yet. I mean, <laughs> basically, I think we ended up. You know, the deal was originally about a fifteen, seventeen million dollar deal. By the time we sold, it was probably worth fifty or sixty million. If we'd held on all our stock to the peak uh, of of AOL, it would have been about a billion. Oh, so uh, you know, yeah. So I would definitely got out way too early. Right. But if you look at it, you know, here AOL went all the way up to a market cap of two hundred sixty billion, and then all the way back down to twenty. Yeah. So actually, I probably sold at about what was the correct valuation. <laughs> you know? uh, it just, you know, uh, the, the fact that, uh, you know, as they like to say in, in, in venture capital, uh, being too early is functionally equivalent to being wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Last question. What's, what's the next business? You've gone through so many iterations. Consulting, publishing, events. What's well, next? The heart of our business today is something we started in 2000, so it's really an old business. It's our Safari uh, online learning platform. And uh, we, it was originally spun out into a joint venture with Pearson. We bought them out in 2014, and we've really made it the centerpiece of our strategy because uh, it really brings together all of our businesses, uh, online learning, 
uh, is a category people really need on-demand learning of, of, of new skills, uh, a subscription model, mm -hmm. uh, which is something we started doing. In, you know, it, it's the fastest-growing part of our business. But we're able to do all kinds of things to integrate our other business. So we've, we brought live training to the platform. It was originally just an e-book platform. Then we added video training. Uh, we've added uh, things with something called Jupyter Notebooks, which are uh, a way of uh, creating live content where you, you know you can actually interact with code, for example, and so on. But now we're kind of going well. We can actually put put live content in there where you know our conference business comes in there, hmm. and so we uh, you know we're really building out a next generation learning platform, uh, and, and that's pretty exciting. All right. Well, I, I look forward to watching that happen and to reading your book, uh, What's the Future? Yes, it's called WTF, What's the Future and Why It's Up to Us. And Why It's Up to Us. The key message is get rid of the technological determinism. It's not technology that eliminates jobs. It's that we tell technology to eliminate jobs. Hmm. What we should be doing is telling it to, to solve hard problems, to make us richer, to make the world a better place. If we do that, all these technologies like AI and on-demand, they are going to destroy jobs. They're going to actually create jobs. You know, so there's three things that, that uh, I think are, are central to thinking about the future of jobs and the economy and technology. The first one is technology is the solution to problems. Make sure we're pointing it at real problems. Mm -hmm. Of course, you know, high on my list, you know, things like climate change. You know, aging populations and, and all the things that that's going to bring on in healthcare, uh, fixing our infrastructure and kind of reinventing infrastructure for the 21st century. Plenty to do there. But also, there's a principle that I learned that took me from my thinking about open source to my thinking about Web 2.0 and big data, which is that when something becomes a commodity, which is what happened with open source software and the internet commodifying the old approach to software, something else becomes valuable. And that led me to say, oh, big data is going to become valuable and, and to call that as the as next thing. And I kind of go, okay, so we're going to commodify certain kinds of mental labor. And other things are going to become more valuable as a result. Huh. And you can already see this. And, and so we have to understand our entire economy, not just uh, you know, music and video and you know, publishing, but our entire economy as a creative economy. And so, you know, you think about something like specialty coffee, right? Here is this amazing, or, you know, or, or craft beers. Mm -hmm. you know, here is the creative economy. Things have become a commodity. Oh, well, let's make them better. Let's make them different. Let's make them unique. Let's make them valuable again. Right. And across our economy, there's enormous opportunity to take the new power of commodification and then, you know, elaborate again. Well, you've certainly done that with learning. Yeah, thank you. Tim, <laughs> thanks. thanks a lot. My thanks to Tim O'Reilly. I'm John Fort from CNBC, and this has been Fort Knox, Rich Ideas and Powerful People. Subscribe on Apple's podcast app or wherever fine podcasts are distributed. Please do leave a review if you enjoyed this. Also, subscribe to the Fort Knox channel on YouTube. That's F-O-R-T-T-K-N-O-X.com slash YouTube. Follow me, John Fort, that's J-O-N-F-O-R-T-T, on Facebook or Twitter. You'll see video from some of these interviews, and you can say hi to me live, usually Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Eastern. There I tackle some of the most interesting business and economic issues with a little help from my friends at CNBC and from you. Just go to Facebook and search for Fort Knox or go to Facebook and search for John Fort and you know what to do from there. 
Meanwhile, share this. Tell a friend. Drop me a note on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, or FortKnox.com. And as always, thank you for lending an ear.